situation cause you've always seen me through maybe once a short one. Hey, Dennis. Well, good morning. I hope that you have had a good winter. I, for one, am glad that February is over and spring starts tomorrow. When I last shared with you at the end of January, we looked at a couple letters to churches that were being persecuted under attack. And Jesus's message was, in essence, Satan is about to mess with you more. Some of you will go to prison and die. Buckle up. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will reward you. Not overly encouraging, but maybe appropriate for the dead of winter in Michigan. (laughs) Well, I haven't had that level of intensity. It has felt like I've taken a few body blows over the past few weeks. And at times, it has felt (laughs) that I've been hanging on by a thread. And by the support of friends and their prayers. I kept thinking about those words from Jesus. Buckle up. It's going to be rough. Be faithful even if it requires to the point of death. It will be worth it. Thankfully, a couple weeks ago, we began to see some relief. And have really received some encouraging answers to prayer. Also in February... A long-awaited trip to Israel with several other couples that we had expected to be a life-changing week actually turned out to be three days of travel with a 24-hour layover in Israel. As upon landing, we needed to immediately book a return flight to address some issues going on in our family. Now that the uh, intensity has dissipated a little, Melissa and I joked that we might be the only couple in history to spend three days traveling for a quick jaunt to Israel, who also, nearing their 35th anniversary, renewed their wedding vows at a church in Cana, where Jesus had performed his first miracle, turning water into wine. Now, despite the trials, there have been a few amazing gifts to my spirit over the last six weeks. One was the incredible infusion of faith and hope that watching the movie Jesus Revolution brought. Wasn't it incredible to just see the story of how the Calvary Church through Pastor Chuck Smith got started 50 years ago? One of the things that struck me from the movie was I just was imagining how depressing it must have been for the churchgoers then in that era to see this anti-authority, anti-war, free sex and drug culture. I could really kind of resonate with The pastor, when after watching, you know, the the news of probably Woodstock, whatever, on TV, he said out loud, I just don't get this younger generation. In fact, God's going to need to bring a hippie and plop him right here next to me in my living room for me to be able to understand. Which, of course, if you've seen the movie, God does. And didn't you love the comment of the hippie? He said, Pastor, can't you see that they're just looking for God, but no one's showing them the way? The second real gift to my spirit was watching the rest of season three of the Chosen episodes. Aren't those just great? I love the way that Jesus is portrayed. His joy, his calm, the sense of authority when he speaks. 
Now, just to warn you, our passage today is a bit heavy. We're going to be reading about six trumpets that usher forth judgment on the earth. It's going to be affecting animals, vegetation, and people. We'll see pictures of flaming meteors and volcanoes being hurled to earth, initiating a bunch of devastation. What's been interesting to me is I've been kind of reading and mulling over this passage in conjunction with watching The Chosen. One of the scenes that really impacted me was the scene of Jesus in his hometown synagogue reading that passage from Isaiah. The quote where he says, the spirit of God is upon me. He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, recovery of sight, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And specifically, what happens when he's done in his interaction with the rabbi. And just so that you can kind of have in your minds what has been kind of so vivid in mind, Ron and Ryan have graciously teed up a couple-minute clip. So let's just watch this clip. Hopefully it'll work. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to the opening of the prison for those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The fulfillment of this scripture, as you have heard it, is today. This is the year of the Lord's favor. This is a year of jubilee, a year of the poor, the brokenhearted, the captive, and the blind are offered redemption. Here, now. We are with you. Keep going. Not bad for a carpenter's son, yes? I mean, especially Joseph. May he rest in peace. Jesus, please explain why you stopped the reading before Isaiah spoke of the day of vengeance of our God, especially during a time of such oppression. The day of vengeance is in the future. I'm not here for vengeance. I'm here for salvation. So in the midst of the verse from Isaiah, he cuts it off when it says, the day of vengeance of the Lord. I doubt anyone listening to him expected that parenthesis or that comma with the second clause to take more than 2,000 years to come to fruition. But here we are. The day of vengeance that we're going to be reading about today is for the future. The future is what we're reading about in Revelation 8 and 9. And here's the good news. 
Because today's vision describes a time in the future, it means that we are actually still living in the day of Jubilee, the day of hope and of the ability for God to still be moving. So no matter how bleak our culture seems, we can remember that just like 50 years ago, when God began to move and to take a hippie generation and introduce them to Jesus, we still ourselves have the potential for God to birth a new revival to reach the hearts and the souls of our younger generation. God is still loving, but he has set a time for the end to come in an historic way. And as I read about, you know, these angels and these trumpets that we're going to be reading about in a few minutes, it reminded me of the time it was first disclosed in the Bible that God wanted to bring judgment. I'm sure that many of us at some point in our lives as Christians made a New Year's resolution on January 1st. I'm going to read the Bible through this year. And although many of us get bogged down when we get to Leviticus, hopefully we all at least made six days to Genesis chapter 6, the story of the flood and of Noah. Listen to the heart of God that's described in Genesis before judgment came. It says this beginning in verse 5. God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. It grieved him to his heart. So he said, I'm going to blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land. Man and animals, creeping things and the birds of heaven. For I'm sorry that I made them. But of course, Noah found favor in God's eyes, and we were given a second chance as mankind. It also reminded me of something Pastor Kevin said a few weeks back. Remember when he was talking about kind of the time delay, that it was indicative of God's heart? This is the way that Second Peter states it. It says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So while it will end ugly, God's patience combined with the year of his favor means that we can still make a difference in the spiritual destinies of people today. Now, as you read this vision of John, I couldn't help thinking about, I wonder if his frame of reference was with our technology today, if it would read a little bit differently. Remember, he's writing this back in, you know, the first century. They didn't have all of our technology So, for example, when we read descriptions like this, the horses have sulfur, fire, and blood coming from their mouths. I wonder if it was written today, if it might say the tanks had, you know, things blasting out of their cannons. Or how about this one? Later in the book, we read about 100-pound hailstones coming down from the skies and, you know, exploding. I wonder if it was written today, if it would sound a little bit more like bombs being dropped from B-52s. So it's a, it's a story. It's, he's describing something, but as Doug has mentioned many times, we may not be able to take everything so specifically, literally, that it's exactly the way it was because he didn't have, a, he didn't have the capacity to even understand some of it. So here's how the morning's going to flow. In just a couple minutes, I'm going to ask my wife to read the passage we're looking at in chapters 8 and 9. Then we're going to, you know, understand what the judgments were. And then we're going to pause and look at the angels. I found it very interesting to think about the angels' jobs as described here and throughout the Bible. And there will be a challenge for those of us who consider ourselves to be followers of Christ. And then at the end, we're going to look at the shocking response to these plagues by the survivors. 
So, if you could stand up. Melissa's going to come and read. It's on page, I think, 1032, if you're using the Bible underneath you. If you've got the uh, journals of Revelation, it's page 32. And we've got some selected verses that we're reading. Revelation chapter 8. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, a third of living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And a fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from the heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. Let's pray. Lord, it's hard to even know how to process these atrocities. I thank you that we can lean into your love and your patience, knowing that you do desire us to be with you. 
And we also know that you give us many, many opportunities for most of us to repent before you bring in your hammer of judgment. Please give us ears to hear what your spirit wants us to hear this morning. I ask that you would give us the courage to accept our assignment in your kingdom, whether it brings great suffering or joy, whether we fully understand what we're going through or if at times we're hanging on by a thread. And we just have to trust that you are good and that you will someday have it make sense to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. All right, let's first just do a quick kind of recap of the, of the judgments, these trumpets, right? The first one, you know, is, is sounded and the hailstone comes down and says a third of the earth, a third of the trees and all the grass gets torched. The second one sounds, and a, a, I picture a volcano that's erupting just hurled into the sea. It says a third of the sea becomes blood. A third of the animals living in the sea die, and a third of the ships are destroyed. Did a little research. Did you know that there are over 90,000 ships traversing the seas? Can you imagine the cataclysm if... 30,000 ships sink. Imagine how many must be carrying oil and the kind of the, the Valdez kind of, you know, issues when all the oil was spilled just with one tanker. Or how about this one? Did you know that there are 314 cruise ships sailing around? And if it's proportionate in damage, that means that we would likely have more than 100 Titanics occurring as part of this Judgment. Then another, this star, this wormwood, bitterness comes down and, and the fresh water, a third of the fresh water turns into blood and people start to die from drinking the bad water. The fourth one is sounded and then we have this kind of darkness, a third of the light gets reduced. Now it's interesting because throughout the Bible there's a lot of references to the end times and they all have this kind of flavor of darkness. Listen to what Jesus says when he's talking about when he will actually come back at the very end. He says this in Matthew 24. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then there will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now clearly what we're looking at today is not the gathering in of all the believers. We're looking at the kind of beginning pains of judgment. What's interesting to me is up to this point with the first four, it's been more like a shaking of the ecosystem then it's been specific plagues to kill people. Yes, I'm sure some people drowned in the shipwrecks and probably, you know, a bunch of people are, are getting killed by the bad water. But now he says there was like a pause and an eagle started circulating around overhead and it kept saying, whoa, 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 the mine's about to blow. Look out, it's going to get worse, right? So now we have the fifth trumpet that sounds and, and there's a key given to this bottomless shaft it gets unlocked and the smoke comes out. It gets dark again. And then there's this, these locusts that come up that sting like scorpions. How bad will it be? It's going to be so bad, it says, that people are going to wish they could die, but they're going to still be in torment. That's pretty bad. Then we hear the first of the big three woes has passed. Now, we're only covering six of the trumpets today. 
you know, this is in the middle of the seventh seal. And then when the seventh trumpet later gets sounded, there's going to be these seven bowls of vengeance. It's almost like a circular story. Again, I don't understand all the specific details. But the sixth trumpet is bad news. He says to the angel that blows it, go down and release the four angels at the great river Euphrates for their job assignment. And it says specifically, they've been made for this hour, this day, this month, this year. A third of mankind is destroyed. Today, there's over 7.8 billion people on the planet, I'm told. So at least two and a half billion people get toasted from this judgment. The troops, two times 10,000 times 10,000. 10 to the fourth times 10 to the fourth is 10 to the eighth for middle school math people. That's 200 million troops. Now, we don't get a lot of detail on this. And, you know, I don't know what it is, but I have a couple different pictures that come to mind. My first picture is the stormtroopers in Star Wars. Like, is there just 200 million with white helmets? Is it like God turns on a light bulb and the artificial intelligence, and they just go out and they go kill people? I don't know. But if it's like angels, like in training, you know, the the Green Berets, the Navy SEALs, they do a lot of training for that once or twice in a lifetime, nighttime, you know, stink, uh, you know, stick that they do. You know, how do you feed all? I mean, who knows? All I know is that for these specific angels, their entire existence had one purpose in God's eyes. Be ready for when I turn on the light bulb, when I open up the gates and go and send out my vengeance. Now, remember... My thesis today is that the end is not yet, which means that we still have some opportunity to bring hope and new life, like in the movie Love Revolution. Now, I was processing what this passage said a couple weeks ago um, with my youngest daughter, uh, Anna, as I was trying to just kind of figure out what to say. And she kind of interrupted me in the middle of it. She goes, I got a question for you. She goes, Dad, I don't get it. What's up with all these angels and all these, you know, plagues? Why doesn't God just snap his fingers and get it over with already? I mean, I don't know. Why is it? I thought to myself, I got the same stinking question. I wish there was a manual to tell me. Like, like, why? So it kind of got me down a little bit of a rabbit trail. And so what I feel part of the message of the day is, is to help us understand the angels a little better. They're all over the Bible. There's nowhere near enough time to cover everything. But think of some of the ways that they're described. First of all, remember after Jesus' 40 days of temptation out in the wilderness? He survives the test. He hasn't eaten for 40 days. And this is what we read in Matthew 4. Angels came and ministered to him. Hmm. Even Satan was aware of the angel's role because one of the temptations was get to the top of the temple and jump off and like Superman glide to the earth and everyone will see it and they'll go, whoa, isn't this great? Because you know, Jesus, Satan said, God said he will command his angels to guard you. How about this comment of Jesus in Matthew 18? You know, as typically with him, after he started doing all these miracles, he's constantly being crowded by people wanting to hear. Well, a bunch of kids got in the way. And so the adults were kind of going, get out of the way. This is for adults. You know, it's men's business. You know, no kids. And Jesus said, no, no, no. Don't despise the little ones. I tell you, in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father in heaven. Now, this is the text in the Bible from the, where we get the concept of each of us having a guardian angel. Again, I don't know if that's literally true. Is it just, I mean, is there 7.8 billion angels in front of God representing? I don't know. But what we do know is that there are angels who have a role. 
How about this one? In Hebrews, this is what angels are described as. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Remember Jesus when he got arrested uh, you know, at night in Gethsemane, one of, the, one of the disciples pulls out a sword and hacks off someone's ear, and Jesus says, put away your swords. Do you think I cannot appeal to my Father and at once he will send more than 72,000 angels, six legions? At the end of Hebrews, there's this very kind of, you know, out of context, random verse. This is what it says. Make sure you're hospitable to strangers walking through. Because thereby some people have entertained angels without even knowing it. In the church in Corinth, there were some disagreements. People were suing each other in the courts. And Paul's upset. Like, come on. Take it in-house. Don't air your dirty laundry in front of people that don't even believe in God. Can't you have a couple wise people sit down and kind of figure out how to navigate what's the fair resolution? And then he says this. Don't you know we're going to be judging angels in the future life? How much more should we be able to handle things here on earth? In one of the statements of 1 Peter, he's talking about a lot of the prophecies, the prophets in the Old Testament. They just got a little fuzzy. They had no idea the grandeur of what Jesus was. He's kind of saying, look, you're lucky that God's allowed you to see all this. A lot of people couldn't. He said, you know that many of these things are things into which angels long to look into. In other words, many of the angels that God's created don't see the whole picture. They just know my job is to wait here, and when the light bulb turns on and I'm released, I go and I do judgment, or I go and I serve in these different ways. Then there's some interesting things about the ways that angels interact with Satan and the demonic. Peter says, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, don't pronounce blasphemous judgment against them before God. In Jude, the the small book that the women are going to start studying in April, in verse 9, he says this. But when the archangel Michael was contending with the devil, having a dispute about Moses' body, whatever that was, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but merely said, the Lord rebuke you. And there are angels that also rebelled. You know, for any of you that aren't up to speed on the doctrine of the church of Satan and his origins, he's described as being the highest angel at one point, named Lucifer. But he got a little full of himself and said, I'm sick of taking orders from God. I'm going to be God. And he rebelled. And a lot of his his kind of like um, angels followed him, the fallen angels. Here's what the Bible says about them. In 2 Peter, if God didn't spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, then God knows how to take care of the unrighteous and keep them under punishment until the final day. Again in Jude, angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, God has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So what's the takeaway? Angels are active. They're created beings. And some of them have assignments in God's plan being played out. So how does this relate to today? So in verse 15 of chapter 9, this is what we read. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. So the question that I want to posit for each of us here today that are followers of Jesus is this. 
for what have you been created? Is it possible that you could live your whole lifetime just being a, a parent, a friend, you know, working hard with your hands, but that there will be a time when the light bulb goes off and he wants to know, are you ready to obey when I call you to the front lines? Kind of reminds me of the phrase in the book of Esther. Again, I know not all of you love the Old Testament like I do, but it's a great story to read. There was a period of time when the Persian uh, Empire had taken some Jewish people into exile. And one day the queen disrespects the king and he banishes her. So they have a beauty contest to find a replacement. And it just turns out that this lady Esther was Jewish, but she kept it quiet and she won the beauty contest. She's the queen. Now, the drama of the book is there's a protagonist who hates the Jews, and he uses his influence to get the king to decree extermination of Jews. So, Esther's uncle calls her aside and says, guess what, sweetie, it's time to put your cards on the table, go to your husband and tell him you're Jewish, and he's got to do something. And she said, do you know what happened to the last queen that overstepped protocols? I don't think I want to do that. And here's what he says in verse, chapter 4, verse 14 of Esther. Her uncle says, who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Who knows if we may be alive today before the end, during the time of God's jubilee for such a time as this. You know, it says in Corinthians that to each one of us is given the manifestation of God's spirit for the common good. We're supposed to play our part. Now, for many of us, it may not be a lot of wild and crazy Shazam miracles every day. You know, the common teaching of the Bible is this. Here's Ephesians 4. Do honest work with your hands so that you can have something to share with anyone in need. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes, Aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. In other words... Wait patiently until your number is called. So that's the kind of challenge of the angels for us as Christians. But the shocking part of this passage is how it ends. I didn't have that read first because I wanted to just jump into it right now. So these are the last two verses of Revelation 9. How do people respond to the judgments? It says, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor did they give up worshiping demons and idols which cannot see, hear, or walk, nor did they depend of their murders or their sorceries, their sexual immorality, their thefts. And I just, I go, are you kidding me? You're alive when all this is going on in the world and it doesn't slap you in the face to wake up out of your stupor? You gotta be kidding Now, why don't they repent? Now, first I want to just acknowledge that sometimes the the kind of slap in the face does work. Remember the story of Jonah, right? God's ready to toast a whole city. It says there's over 100,000 souls that are there. But before he brings the hammer down, he says to Jonah, give him one more chance. Tell him this. In 40 days, it's coming. Repent or not, or else turn or burn. And of course, they all repent. Even Jesus gives us a window into the Shazam factor sometimes making a difference. Here's what he says. You know, he's doing all these miracles and there were many people that rejected him. And so he's kind of calling out some of these. He says, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you 
had been done in the Old Testament in front of Tyre and Sidon, I guarantee you they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So, maybe some people do, hopefully some do turn and repent, but the vast story that John saw was I saw what? I saw people giving God the Heisman still. And here's what I really want to just kind of lay on you as we, as we near the end. It's possible to harden yourself to God's voice, to his whisper. Four times in the New Testament, this phrase is quoted. Actually, in the Bible. One's in Old Testament time. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. It's dangerous to presume that you can give God the Heisman and he's going to keep chasing you down. Now, yes, we see the story of the prodigal son. Even when he disrespects his dad and runs away, when he humbles himself and walks back, the heart of God is to notice it and run and embrace him. I'm not trying to say God's a hardened God, but you need to hear this, I believe. Sometimes if we harden our heart too much, I believe God can stop whispering. Does it say in Revelation 3, earlier we read this one, God says, I stand at the door and knock. Or Jesus said, if you hear my voice and open, I know that God is a knocker. He gives me way more chances than I deserve. Hopefully you've experienced his mercy that way as well. But listen to what he says in Romans chapter 1. Some of you might remember this from the fall when we went through it. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Therefore, God gave them up. I don't think there's a scarier verse in the Bible as a person evaluating where you are with God than that. Let's pray God never gives up knocking for us. Now, one of my great joys in life has been coaching. And it's interesting. And, you know, I spent some time, you know, doing that with football and with and with baseball, and then I was an assistant with, uh, with Tony Simarusi a number of years at the football team itself, and invariably during the year, there's going to be one of the kids that's going to come to me off to the side and go, why does coach keep riding me, man? He doesn't give me a break. Why does he hate me so much? Why is he picking on me? And I go, Joe, you don't get it, do you? The fact that he's picking on you is good. The time to be scared is when he gives up on you and says, you're a waste of my time. I'm going to go after Steve. And some of us, I believe, are in danger of thinking it just doesn't matter. I can play around with this. When we hold on to bitterness, it can harden ourselves to God. Now, the first seven years of our marriage, we were youth pastors. It was a group kind of like Young Life. And every fall, we would take a retreat, driving kids out to this weekend in Princeton. One year, they had the keynote speaker as this Sort of, I guess I'm probably his age now. At the time, he seemed old. This elderly Episcopal priest with cerebral palsy. And you kind of had to lean in to understand what he was saying. And he gave a talk that, that it was like God just showed up in a cloud with what he was saying. And here's what his point was. He said, some of us have windows open and we're hearing a whisper from God. But he said, here's the problem. When we close that window... There's never a guarantee that God's going to pry it open again and the whisper will come. And it gets back to that verse I quoted earlier. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Because it can come to a point where you no longer can hear because you're calloused 
Or, God forbid, he actually stops riding you like the coach and says, fine, you want to live your life that way? Go for it. Now, again, there's a tension here, right? Yes, there will be this ultimate day when God gives up and he judges everybody, just like he did with everyone except for Noah's family, you know, early on in in Genesis. But here's what I love about God's heart. This is a passage from another crazy prophet with lots of visions called Ezekiel in the Old Testament. Listen to what he says. God said to him, listen, if a wicked person turns away from all that he's done, all his sins... He will live and not die. And here's verse 23. God says, do I have any pleasure in smiting the wicked? No. I would love for people to turn from their wickedness and to respond to my knocks and my whispers and live. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Be careful when you hear his whisper. That's the time to respond. I just love that scene of Jesus in the video that I I showed you, right? He said, I haven't come for vengeance. I've come for redemption, for salvation. It will come, but it's thankfully for a later time. And like angels, I believe each of us has assignments available for us. For some of us, when God turns on the light bulb and you sense him prompting you to do some good deed, to bless somebody, to speak, and someone's faith is encouraged, it's some of the greatest joys of my life, those times where I've sensed God wanting to turn on the light bulb. But will we be ready when he calls? Are we too busy doing our own things? What was the statement that was made at the end of that verse in chapter 20? They still didn't give up worshiping their idols, clinging to things that don't talk or see or walk or have any power to do anything. Not sure where we're all at today, but I'm so encouraged by that movie It's not a guarantee that America has to go down the toilet and we become completely godless and people have no sense of how to raise their kid. It doesn't have to be that way. And wasn't it so encouraging when the hippie said, dude, you're missing it. These aren't all just evil. These are lost sheep. They're getting high. They're doing all this stuff because they're just trying to feel loved. And your church, it's repelling them. And a movement started where people who were hungry for love and God began to experience him. And yeah, it got a little messy at times. And there were some people a little full of themselves. And, but, but let's live with the mess, but let's not just, you know, close ourselves off. And if God's stirring in anyone the whisper, have the courage to stand up and to move forward. There's too much at risk. Today, if you hear his heart, Don't harden your heart. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that in the middle of these horrible judgments, I was able to see the heart of you and the reminder that even when you you destroyed the world with the flood, it was was a sadness that you felt like, is there anybody that loves me, that gets it? 
Lord, can we be a faithful remnant? You said when you were about to toast Sodom and Gomorrah when you're negotiating or when Abraham, I guess, was more negotiating with you. If there was just 10 righteous people, I'd spare the whole stinking city. Lord, can we be that beacon for Detroit, for, our, for Michigan? Pray that you'd fill us with faith and with hope. Lord, there might be some people that had a much worse winner than me that are hanging on by a thread and they just need to, they need to, to feel that you, you care. That even though you're not answering the prayers yet, that someday you will. But you just bless them with faith. And Lord, I ask that, that each of us at least once this week, would have a whisper from you, a prompting that we would say yes to, and we would get in the game of how it's meant to be lived, being a part of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. The folks that uh, prayed for us have, um, oops, let me see what's wrong with my album here. Had these things. They sense there was a young man, 20s-ish, that's dealing with depression and would really like to have some deliverance from what's going on there. Another one felt there was a man in, in his 40s that just needs prayer. And then this was an interesting kind of specific one. The discernment was there's some sort of a blocking spirit that it's almost preventing someone from being able to see the revelation of God's heart and love for them. And it might be causing someone's heart to harden. And if that sounds like you and you want some prayer to repel whatever spiritual things might be going on, come up. Another sense that someone in authority, whether it's fire department or police, just need to have a hug and know how appreciated they are. And then the last one was just a reminder that giving some love or sympathy could be all it takes to move people we come in contact with closer to the Lord. So if any of those resonate, I would encourage you to come for prayer or come for prayer for anything else. But uh, thanks for being here. Blessings. Have a great day.